morning. If you have a Bible, please open it to James chapter 1. We can turn your phone on, open that. You'll find the uh, notes in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, the text for this morning is written on the back of the bulletin. Um, and after introducing uh, James's letter this morning, we'll actually begin um, the, the exhortation that he gives. Now, I'll give you a little framework of how the book divides up. James gives a nice indication of when he's shifting topics with the address, my brothers. It's the most frequent um, way he does so. There's two exceptions, but what usually happens is you get my brothers and some imperative. So you see in verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers. And then the next one is in verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers. Brothers, Um, chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality. So that tells us then that verses 2 to 15 uh, form a unit. And it's bounded and directed by this theme of trials. It will probably take us five Sunday mornings to get through these verses. They're rich. They're incredibly practical. And so, and that really also sets up a dominant theme in the book itself. Trials. I suggested last week that the theme of the book is that true or genuine faith works itself out in the midst of life's trials by relying on God's wisdom. So I'd like to begin this morning by reading chapter 1, verses 2 to 15. And we'll have a word of prayer and then we'll begin, even though we're just looking at verses 2 through 4. <clears throat> James chapter 1, 2 to 15. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is... Driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. His flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away In the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God himself, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Lord God, I pray that we would receive meekly your word, that we would adopt your wisdom, that we would embrace your commands, and particularly as we face trials in this world, that we would be obedient and faithful, that we would not look in the mirror and forget what we look like, but become effectual doers, blessed in our doing. Lord God, I pray now that 
you would open our eyes to see wondrous things in your law. In Jesus' name, amen. So to give you some idea of how this section works, he gives his opening address in verses 2 to 4, the opening command, how to think about trials. Then in in verses 5 through 8, praying in the midst of trials, asking for wisdom. Then in verses 9 through 11, we consider differing trials. There are trials for poor. There are trials for the rich. Differing counsels given. And then we get another blessing for trial to show us that we're still on the same theme. Look at how verse 12 picks up what's laid out in the first two verses that we're looking at here. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Then he considers the opposite of remaining steadfast under trial, getting angry, blaming God. And he corrects us, no, no, when you are Lord and enticed, it's by your own desires. So that's the discussion, how to regard, how to think about, how to endure trials. And this morning, we're going to look at this in two points. There are two imperative verbs in these two verses. The first is in verse 2, count it all joy. Think this way, my brothers. Think this way, my brothers. Isn't it remarkable how James comes out of the gate taking head on one of the most dominant and practical issues we face, our trials. He doesn't work his way there. He just opens up, hello, James, greetings, count it all joy. Interestingly, in the Greek, there's a connection of thought. He's sort of laying shingles, one on top of each other. The word for greeting, kairain, is a cognate with the verb to count it joy. So that links. He ends the greeting and then he links it to the next thought. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for the, you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Then he links off of steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that it may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He also links their full effect. It's perfect work, literally in the Greek. So let steadfastness have its perfect work, linking then with so that you'll be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Verse 5, but if you do lack, another linking thought, So this opening few verses very tightly linked together as a word at the end of a sentence picks up and becomes a word at the beginning of the next sentence. This is very tightly written and reasoned. And so let's consider this command. Make no mistake, this is a command. It's an imperative verb. This isn't suggestion. This isn't advice. This is one of the leaders, if not the leader, in the Jerusalem church writing to his scattered flock. They're in exile. There's been persecution. They're in the minority. They're not strong culturally. That's why they were dispersed. He knows they're facing trials. And his opening exhortation, his opening command is think. Consider a pure joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So the first blank here. The command then relates to our thinking and evaluations. He's not commanding our emotions. Rather, think a certain way. Think a certain way. And the way we're to think of these trials is, the ESV has here, um, all joy. Now, I think what is here is not exclusive joy, not only joy, but rather immense joy, great joy. So not exclusive joy, but immense joy. What do I mean? Obviously, trials are grievous. 
Trials bring suffering. They bring difficulty. They bring groaning. He's not forbidding that or trying to get us to pretend that's not the case. With the suffering, with the groaning, with the grief, he's saying, we need to reckon it also, in addition, a cause for great joy. Let me show you a similar passage in 1 Peter. In fact, one commentator suggests that Peter's time with James, he may have picked up this lingo from him. 1 Peter 1, 6-7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The phrase various trials is is, is identical language to James. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So trials are causes for grief, sorrow, lament. We've, We've been reading in the Psalms. And what James is saying is not, pretend that's not the case, but actively also regard them as causes for great joy. So the command then is how we think, how we regard, how you may say interpret your trials. How are we to interpret them? And I want you to pause for a moment and consider the significance that in a book dominated with the theme of trials, the opening command is directed towards our mind, not to our action. There will be actions later in the book. But the opening command in a book focused on persevering in trials is think. What does that suggest? Why start there? And for those of you who were in my youth group 14 years ago, you may remember. In fact, I was greatly encouraged. I saw Simeon last week, and I said, you know what next week is? And he said, yes, I do. I, won't, I don't want to spoil the blanks, but he gave me the three blanks here in order. Um, nothing, makes, nothing makes a teacher happier than to see someone 14 years later knowing stuff. Like, okay, there's a little spot of bronze that might survive the fire you know, when my work gets tested. That's encouraging. Good job, Simeon. But here's the question I want you to consider. What is the relationship, biblically, between our actions, our feelings, and our thinking? How do they influence each other? How do they affect each other? And and by contrast, let me suggest you what I think the dominant wisdom in the world is in this. If you were to say, okay, what's the, the, the order of operations? I think our culture would say, in most cases, you start with your feelings, your intuition, your authentic self. Be you. Don't be fake. Be authentic. You start with whatever that is, and that wellspring springs up. And then you act on you. Why did you do it? It felt like the right thing to do. I did it because I had to be me. I did it because it just came naturally. And then we think about it afterwards with your therapist or whatever. You, you interpret what you've done. So I think in most instances the culture would say you, you feel, you intuit, you act, and then you think. I don't think that's, well, I'm confident the Bible rejects such an approach. And part of the problem, then, is people wait to do things until they feel like doing them. We're slaves of our feelings because we think the feelings are the train, engine. Turn, turn all the way to the other end of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 4, the very first counseling scenario in Scripture. Genesis 4, where God himself gives counsel to Cain. And if you have an ESV or New American Standard, there's going to be a footnote that's going to be very helpful 
in understanding what's going on. If you remember, Cain and Abel both give their gifts. One is received, one is rejected. Verse 5, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell, which is a Hebrewism of saying, pouting, sad face, which is a way of speaking to emotions, right? When your face is scowling, it's showing how you're feeling. So here comes the Lord, God, with counsel for Cain. Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well... Will you not be accepted? Which is a way of taking a Hebrew colloquialism and trying to make it understandable. My ESV has a footnote there. If you jump down, if your Bible has a footnote here, literally the Hebrew, if you do what is well, will it not be the lifting of your face? It's speaking to the feelings. Cain, if you'll go be obedient, you'll be smiling in no time. That's what he's saying. Cain, why is your countenance fallen? Why are you scowling? Why are you frowning? Why do you have the poochy lip? Use vernacular use my kids. Go do what's right, and your countenance will lift. And this is huge because our feelings are more like the caboose. Feelings are important, they're powerful. I'm not trying to minimize that, but we all know the impotence and the powerlessness of trying to change your feelings. I don't like this. Well, I should like it. Well, I don't. Okay, I'll just try to like it. I, I don't. I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm happy. And feelings are powerful things. Cain's feelings, I think, are largely in part what are going to drive him to murder, his anger. God's counsel is go do what's right and your, your face will lift. This is the same thing Jesus says when he says, now that you know my commands, blessed or happy are you if you do them. The Bible's assumption, here are your blanks, is really all of our activity starts with thinking. We think and then out of our thinking come our actions. And then out of that conglomerate of our thinking and actions come our feelings. Think, do, feel. That's what Simeon said to me last week. I said, you know what's next week? He goes, think, do, feel. I said, yes. And that's important for us to get because feelings are important. But James goes to the root of the issue. I mean, and think through this, especially in trials. You know this, once we start grumbling, once we start getting down, once we start getting in a bad mood, it builds and it builds and it builds. And so James recognizes the priority of our response and the priority for counsel in a trial is the thought life, the mind. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is, the scripture says. Whereas one of my professors used to say, you're not what you think you are. But what you think, you are. The thought life, the heart, the values, the affections, that's the real me. And so James is is very shrewd here at evidencing that he understands that the, the real crux of the matter in trials is how we're to evaluate and interpret them. And so the command is not to feel happy, to fake happy, but rather to regard, to interpret. This is the same language used in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count or regard others as more significant than yourselves. That's, that's the idea. How do you interpret your trials? 
And it's a cause for great joy. Now, let me stress, this is not hyperbole. Nor is this original to James. I I told you last week, James is reiterating much of Jesus' public ethical teaching. And how does the Sermon on the Mount begin? It begins with Beatitudes. And what was the last Beatitude? It was this, Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you, happy are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So James is not saying anything fundamentally new here. Paul also says in Philippians 1, as an encouragement to the church, verse 29, it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that not only should you believe, but also suffer for his sake. And proving that this isn't hyperbole, you remember when the, when the early church leaders were called by the Pharisees, Acts 5, the Pharisees, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. This isn't hyperbole. This isn't hyperbole at all. So then get this. The command that you or I can be obedient or disobedient to is in a trial to regard, to consider it, to value it and interpret it as a cause for great joy, even as it may be a cause for great sorrow, great suffering, great grief and anguish. Okay? So that's the command. Now, when we get to the end of this point, I'll try to put it together. And Okay, how do you do this? What does it look like? So that's the command. Okay? Next, when. He gives a clause, when. And the ESV says when, but really it's whenever. And the point I want to get at here is... Um, he's being inclusive rather than exclusive. It's all joy, all the time, for all types of trials. That's the idea. Count it all joy whenever. Well, first a word, a thought on the word temptation or trial. The word trial and temptation are similar, but James uses them distinctly. And so the idea for a trial is an external test or difficulty. An external test or difficulty. That external test or difficulty could be someone else's sin. It could be natural. It could be sickness or disease. It could be political. It could be societal. But they're external trials. Just from reading the book of James, we get an idea of some of the trials his readers are facing. First off, they're in the dispersion. They've been forced to very quickly leave their homes, probably leaving much of their property behind with them. Next, we know that some of them are being dragged into courts by the rich. We know that others of them are being neglected and told to sit in shabby places while the rich among them are being honored. They're being shamed. We know that there's conflict and fighting in chapter 4. We know in chapter 5 that some of them are being defrauded, falsely accused, robbed of their wages. These are just the trials we can glean from the book itself. And think about our past year. Has 2020 offered up any trials? Any challenges? Yes, it has. So these trials are external tests or difficulties in contrast to where James goes in verse 14. Uh, James, in verse 14, 
You're not to say God's tempting you. God's sovereign over the externals. But James wants to make it clear, your temptation is you. Look at verse 14. Each one of us is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. So James will address what's going on on the inside. He will address that. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about external trials and testing, which certainly interact with your desires on the inside, no doubt. Um, they, they become occasions for your desires, my desires within me, to lure and entice me to respond wrongly, to grumble, to complain, to argue, to quarrel. But the trial that I'm to view as a cause for joy is the external, the, the stimulus. And so your next blank, then, is at any time and of any kind. At any time and of any kind. L- literally, the, the Greek here... Whenever you might fall in among. It's the same word used in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The man fell in among robbers. It's the same word used of a ship in Acts crashing upon the reef. So you're going along your life, and at any point in time, you know this, we might fall in among a trial. And then he wants to make the trials various. You could also translate various multicolored. And the point here is this. James isn't viewing certain trials only. He's, he's got all of them in view. All types of trials, whenever you might fall into a trial. What I'm trying to get at, you can't argue your trial is the exception to this. He's been so systematically inclusive. All joy, all the time, for all sorts of trials. You're not the exception. The command applies in any trial you might fall into of any sort. The command is to reckon, to think of it as pure or great joy. And he doesn't just give us the command then, but he also gives us a reason why. So the the flow of the thought is, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of it as pure joy. When, whenever you encounter various trials, why? Knowing, for you know... The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, there's a lot going on here in what this text assumes. I want to make a few points here. First, this text assumes that what we think, our thinking, is fueled by our knowing. That our ability to regard and interpret reality is built upon what we know. I mean, that, that seems to make sense. Um, I, I've used this example before, but if I open the door... And there's a masked person with a knife standing there. Whether or not I know it's Halloween or not will greatly affect how I interpret that event, right? And whether or not I scream and run away or whether I hand someone some candy. Um, but no, and this, this part of getting back to, we all have to, we're all interpreters all the time. I mean, we may not be consciously aware of our fact that we're interpreting, but you and I have to first make sense of reality. We have to put it in a framework. We have to make sense of it. And that's where James is giving his command. As you make sense of, as you grapple with, as you think about these trials, you are commanded. It's going to take activity. This isn't something that comes naturally to regard trials as a cause for great joy. Our thinking is fueled by our knowing. Uh, And what that means then is that if you want to obey this command, if you don't want to be disobedient to this command, you're going to want to be rehearsing and reminding yourself of truth you know. James is saying you can do this because you know this. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's the first assumption, that 
Our ability to think and interpret is directly fueled by what we know to be true. I want you to notice something as well. James is going to give at least two reasons why we want to remain and endure and be steadfast in trials. He's going to give us two in this passage, a now and a a present and a near present reason. There's a temporal benefit. You're going to get endurance. You're going to become mature and complete. And then in verse 12, he's going to give an eternal or eschatological motivation as well. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So when James is thinking, there's at least two primary reasons we can motivate ourselves to endure joyfully under trial. One, right now it's going to produce something, and in the future it's going to produce something. He's also, as he considers faithlessness in trials, going to consider the same thing. Just interestingly, look at verse uh, 14 and 15. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin now. And when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. And the death he's talking about is final and ultimate death. Sin left unchecked. Sin grown to maturity. Never killed. Never battled dams. And so James, in classic Jewish thinking, he's got the two roads. There is the road of persevering joyfully in trial, which produces something now, and it promises something later. And there's the path of grumbling and blaming God and complaining and anger that produces sin. And finally, if that road is followed to its end, death. That's part, again, of seeing how this passage hangs together as one unit. But back to the immediate blessing. So this is the immediate blessing, the now blessing we're looking at. There's also a later blessing that's going to be in view in verse 12. But right now we're looking at the now blessing, the now reason. Why should I consider it joy? Because I know something. What is it that I know? I know that the testing of my faith, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, there's another assumption implicit in here, and this is in, I'll state this now because it's an assumption James makes regularly, and that is this. Trials test faith because deeds flow from faith. If you've wrestled with James's insistence on works, especially in chapter 2, it's, it's important for you to understand, James and the rest of Scripture assumes that what you do is the outflowing of what you believe Getting back to my little arrows up here, thinking leads to action. And so we can find out what you believe by what you do. Or as James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. That logic, that, that, this passage, this argument only makes sense if that logic holds true. It only holds true if an external trial is a test of my faith only if my faith affects what I do. Because, of course, the trial is the temptation to act differently, to avoid the suffering, to avoid the problem. And it's going to test what I believe, right? So James is assuming trials test faith because trials give us opportunities to respond in different ways. And because faith is the root of our actions, what you and I believe in any given moment reveals what we worship, what we value, what we believe is true. In the moment where I respond selfishly, in the moment where I respond with self-righteousness, it, I believe I'm that valuable, I'm that important in that moment. So James is assuming here 
the connection between beliefs and actions that he will build upon in chapter 2 significantly. So I want to point that out. Trials test faith because deeds flow from faith. Next, tested faith learns to endure under hardship. So what we know is that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, the word the ESV translators translate steadfastness, I prefer endurance. It's a compound Greek word that you you might be able to, maybe this is one of those times that might be helpful to explain. It's the the prefix hupo, like hupodermic needle, the needle that goes under the skin, under the dermos. Hupo, and then meno, to remain. And so it means to remain under. Endurance, steadfastness, to remain under. But I think it's a really helpful word picture. The testing of your faith produces the ability to remain under. And by implication, a weight or a difficulty. To abide under, to wait under. It produces steadfastness or, as I'm using here, endurance. Tested faith learns learns to endure hardship. And again, I think that makes sense. If you can count it joy in a trial, if you can hold still in a trial, if you don't just run for the exit in a trial, you're learning to endure difficulty. You're not dying like the seed that fell upon rocky soil or thorn-filled soil. This is the same logic that Hebrews 5, 8 gives about Jesus. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Which brings to one more assumption then. So James gives us this motivating factor. You count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why? Because you already know that testing your faith produces endurance. What does that assume? It assumes that genuine faith values endurance more than comfort, doesn't it? Because this argument doesn't work if the hero responds, I don't want endurance. This logic only works. This only provides motivation and encouragement If we want to grow in endurance. So I think it's therefore safe to assume that genuine faith values endurance more than comfort. Right? You with me? These assumptions are implicit in this reasoning. Which then, if you flip that backwards, unbelief is going to value comfort more than endurance. And that's the challenge for us. If you find this difficult, if you find grumbling in trials too easy to do... If you find getting a right attitude too difficult to do, could it be that you don't value endurance? We need to value growing in our endurance more than we value our comfort. I mean, and we get this in other exercises. When I was in high school, at military school, I was on the wrestling team. I know it may may seem that hard to believe, but um, I was on the wrestling team. And we spent about half of our practice time or more building our endurance and stamina. We'd spend time on the mat practicing moves, but I remember every day our coach, who's, who's an ex-Marine, and he, he had a very strong belief in discipline and in um, and building stamina. And we had this really steep, long hill. He'd break us up into two groups. In the first group, group A and group B, group A would have to run up the hill forwards, run up the hill back, down forwards, forwards, forwards. Then group B would do the same thing. And then it would be up the hill forwards, down the hill backwards. And then up the hill backwards, down the hill forwards. And then up the hill backwards and down the hill backwards. And that was a set. And whichever person was last in their group had to run with the next group. So everybody else got to take a breather. And while the, if you were in the group A, while group B ran up and down, you got to catch your breath. But if you were the last person, you had to run with the other group. That was motivating. 
And as much as that was difficult and it was hard, we knew we understood that it was paying off dividends on the mat. And so we regarded it, even as it was difficult, we had a good attitude. We enjoyed doing it. If you exercise, if you run or lift weights, you recognize there's a value, there's something of worth that's more valuable than your comfort. Why is it that somebody will lift weights and sweat and get sore? Well, there's something they value, right? Well, James is assuming we value, true faith values, endurance, growing in endurance. That's the logic here, okay? So why, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness? So what does that look like? Try to sum this up. How, How do you do this? It means, first of all, you recognize you're in a trial. There are all sorts of trials. It could be the bad medical diagnosis. It could be the trial of your life being turned upside down by a pandemic. It could be the trial of conflict. It could be the trial of persecution. It could be all sorts of trials. And and you don't need to pretend it's not difficult. What you need to recognize is here's an opportunity for me to grow my faith in obedience and in discipline and in endurance. So as I've had to endure trials this year, turning my life upside down, how I've worked through it when I go to Costco, Costco wants me to wear a mask, whatever. Here's an opportunity for me to lay aside my rights. Here's an opportunity for me to serve. Here's an opportunity for me to become the slave of all men. That's good, even as it's uncomfortable. When I get a trial of sickness or disease, I want to get better. and I don't enjoy feeling I'm not a sadist or a masochist. But I think here's an opportunity for me to learn to trust on God, to cast myself on him. And I had COVID this summer. I could barely get up and walk around. Okay, God, your grace is good enough to be sufficient. And it's good for me to learn that. I'm seeing how it's growing my faith. I mean, when I'm doing this properly, I don't do this all the time properly. But when I do, that's what it looks like. You've got to stop, think through, and remind and speak truth to yourself. And this is how we can encourage each other. When your, your friends share their struggles, when your friends share their discouragements, you can redirect them back to what's also going on. And that's really the picture. I mean, you think all the way back to the 12 spies who went to spy out Cana, and we're told the 10 spies had a bad report. Why? Is anything they said inaccurate? Not really. But Caleb and Joshua also remembered God has promised us this land, and we'll be victorious. Frequently, it's a matter of what you leave out. When I'm talking to people and they tell me their discouragements, I want to say, okay, what's also true? What's also true? You've told me about the difficulties. Those things are true. What also is true? Has God spoken any promises to this? Is there any good we can see being worked through this? Can you see how God is going to grow you in this? Those are the things we grab hold of to regard this joy. My faith is going to get stronger. I want to grow in endurance Because, we get to our next point, endurance isn't the end of the the road here. Endurance is a step along the way. You grow in endurance, but now, point two, become mature this way, my brothers. Become mature this way, my brothers. He links steadfastness in the SV in verse four, and let steadfastness. So he's giving us further reasons. The first reason why I should count it joy is because whatever else this trial is doing, if I can maintain a right attitude in it, It's going to teach me and train me in endurance, in steadfastness, in faithfulness, in perseverance. But that's not all. 
Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You know, there's so many books out there um, about how to achieve spiritual maturity, how to become spiritually strong. We don't want to be infants. We want to be mature. Here, here's your ticket to maturity. It's pretty straightforward. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking Nothing. So let's deal with the what. Here's your second imperative. What's interesting is it's an imperative command to let something happen. You don't even have to do anything directly. Let steadfastness have its literally perfect work. Let steadfastness have its perfect or complete or mature work. What does he mean here? It means that joyful endurance naturally yields a greater or a complete work. One of the reasons you and I should value endurance is not only for its own sake, but because endurance, tested faith that matures and endures, it becomes a fruitful seedbed for many other things. If you, if you can have the right... If you can... Work hard and obey this. If you can take your thoughts captive and remind yourself that these trials are causes for good things, as well as grief and sorrow and difficulty, then that endurance, that steadfastness itself will produce something even better, mature, complete, perfect, its work. And we're to look to that as well. This is the same rationale that Paul uses in Romans 5. In Romans chapter 5, there's a similar progression where Paul counts suffering cause for joy because it produces something, because it produces something. Let me, let me read that for you. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we are having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing something. The logic's identical. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So James is... Highlighting the reality that joyful endurance doesn't stop there. It then yields other, even greater and better things. A perfect or mature work. So how do you, how do you obey this command then? How do you obey the command? Let. Don't interrupt the joyful perseverance. Don't stop counting it joy. If, if endurance on its own does this, endurance naturally produces more fruit, then all you and I have to do to obey this command is just make sure we keep counting all joy so that our faith, as it's tested, produces more and more endurance. And as more and more endurance shows up, that more and more endurance is going to yield its greater, fuller fruit. Which is another way of saying, here's another reason to obey the base command. It matters how we think. We, we tend to think of grumbling, complaining, arguing, our small sins. I mean, gossip... And grumbling are the sins we don't talk about. Pardon the pun. What was Israel's besetting sin in the wilderness? 
testing God again and again and again and again. They grumbled. Why did he let them wander around and die in the wilderness? They grumbled. And here, his first command in a book centering on trials is that we need to regard them as a cause for joy. We need to actively take our thoughts captive. We need to be intentional. We need to remind ourselves. We need to catch ourselves when we start slipping. We need to encourage each other to do this. Because if we can do this, it will produce endurance. And now we're being told endurance and steadfastness will also yield other things. Do not interrupt this process. He's going to anticipate some of the ways we could anticipate this process. We could anticipate the pro- we could we could uh, interrupt the process by blaming God. Verse thirteen. Let no one say when he's tempted, "I'm being tempted by God." We could interrupt the process. Verse nineteen, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, by getting angry and grumbling. I don't like this. I don't want to remain under this. I want to get out from under this. I want to shake this off. I don't like it. I don't deserve it. I'm going to let you know about it. Be slow to speak. Quick to hear. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Those are some of the ways James anticipates we're not going to do this. We're going to interrupt the process. But if we can keep counting in all joy... The testing of our faith is going to continue to produce endurance. And endurance itself, then, is going to yield its perfect work. He doesn't even name what the perfect work is. Romans makes it clear it's full-orbed character. But he looks to the result of that. Why? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, isn't that a desirable end and goal? Again, so many people want to mature spiritually. They want to be spiritually mature. That's awesome that you want that. The means of doing it are kind of mundane. Stop grumbling. Consider your trials also an occasion for joy. Consider it joy. It's not hyperbole. We've seen in the Bible people actually do this. We need to do it. We need to catch ourselves when we slip into grumbling and complaining. We need to catch ourselves and each other lovingly and redirect ourselves back. Yes, I know it's difficult, but also is not God at work. Is he not teaching us? Is he not growing us? The outcome, then, is our full spiritual maturity. Our full spiritual maturity. I mean, notice how emphatically he states this, that you may be complete, perfect, lacking nothing. He says it positively and negatively, so there can't be any misunderstanding. The word translated perfect could also mean mature. This isn't perfectionism. That the picture is integrity through and through, wholeness, stability, maturity, fully formed. That's what's in view here. This isn't something reserved for heaven. This is actually a goal for here and now. He picks that topic back up in chapter 3. And and why I'm linking this so much to the tongue is because James does. Look at at chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. He's a mature man. It takes maturity to control your tongue. It takes wholeness. It's not an easy thing. How do you get that maturity? How do you get that wholeness? Be slow to speak. Be quick to hear. Count It all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It is that simple and that hard. 
the secret to maturing as a Christian is not hidden deep things. It's pretty straightforward things. Trusting what God has said, reminding yourself of what God has said, believing what he has promised, valuing those things more than your comfort, and letting yourself mature, grow in endurance, and then let endurance itself bear its full-orbed fruit. To be whole is to lack nothing morally or spiritually. To be whole is to lack nothing morally or spiritually. Um. This, this is hard counsel. You've got to learn the habit of counseling yourselves. You've got to learn the habit of catching yourself when you begin to grumble, when you begin to complain, when you begin to try to throw off the trial. You've got to remind yourself, this is good also. This is good in addition to the suffering it brings. Because God is good, and God is causing all things to work for the good of those who love him. The good being the enduring, the maturing. The best picture I can get, again, is back in the weight room. It burns, it hurts. But you do it in the hopes that it's making you stronger. That it's building your stamina and your endurance. That's the same idea here. In a letter fixed on trials, the opening command, how we think about how we regard it, it's important because out of your mind, out of your values, out of your beliefs, Flow your actions, flow your words, and then from them come your feelings. He puts in front of us the the goal here and now of maturity. He's going to give us another goal in verse 12, eternal life. He's going to ramp the stakes up even higher. The crown of life is reserved for those who persevere under trial. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test... When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. There's another reason you want to persevere. Because all of Jesus' sheep make it home into the fold. They persevere. So we're going to sing our closing song. I just encourage you to think practically how, how we can address this, how we can catch ourselves in this. Don't minimize your attitude. Your attitude's everything because your attitude at a trial is going to determine your, your actions. It's going to determine your feelings. It's going to determine and set the full course of everything. It's, it's hard, but we can encourage each other doing this, that we regard it as joy, that we value our growth and our maturity more than we value our comfort. And we just get out of the way and let endurance produce the rest of the full-orbed character that we need so that we can become mature and complete, lacking nothing. And by God's grace, that is what we'll do. I'll call the worship team up as we sing our closing song.